0: Okay, we're back with Carl Nell, who is the EVP of Uncommon Partners Lab at Singularity University. Carl, welcome to Singapore.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to have
0: you here. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're just talking about traveling to Singapore <laughs> and traveling back. So you probably do a lot of traveling, I guess, I do. with SU. A lot of talking. You're here at the SU 10X Future Visioning event here in Singapore. Been talking about the future of work, entrepreneurship, and value drivers. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about entrepreneurship, yeah. not just as a a career, but I guess as a skill set. And yeah. Now, how can you take that sort of entrepreneurship and make that work in large organizations as well? So, I'm going to hear about your sort of ideas about incrementalism and exponentialism. Sure. How did you get into this space? Yeah. Was so the background?
1: Yeah, I'm a I'm a failed academic. You okay. Know? So I, I failed in the sense that I went into academia thinking. Oh well, this is where you learn stuff, and then apply that stuff that you learned. And I was quickly disabused of that belief by re- finding out very quickly that it was about learning to write papers to convince ah. other people. What did you study? I study. I'm a behavioral scientist. So okay. I studied behavioral science. Is and that neuroscience. psychology? Yeah, I was more on the math and the hardware yeah. side, um, in in that one part. But then also on the on the psychology, behavioral science, mm. specifically in the applied. On marketing research, market research, okay. that sort of thing. And, and
0: how did you get into that? Why did you get into that? I got into that because So
1: my dad is in advertising. Okay. And so he was a creative um, for years and years and years, and all of his buddies were these brand planner guys, and they were always trying to figure out why people were buying stuff, and that's what they would talk about. And I thought that was a normal dinner conversation. And it turns out it's not, but anyways, I was really interested in why people buy stuff. Why is that interesting? Why Why do you do this? Why did I do that? And you start to question mm. why people make decisions. And then, and then, you know, as an idealistic youth, um, my wife and I, as newlyweds, we went and lived in Costa Rica for a while. Is what you do? As you do? Uh, going.
0: Who's, where did that conversation well, come? Well,
1: because we wanted to, like, you know, fix the world. You know, oh. we're idealistic, and um, and so that land in in Costa Rica that we all bought as kids in middle school. Is, is bought, but there are people still living on that land and they're clear-cutting. That rainforest is a very critical part of the, uh, that, uh, that rainforest there. And so our job was to go down there and to help the people living there and to try to pull them out of that poverty cycle to save the land but also to save those people. But what was happening is like these policy things were getting in the way, both on the governmental side and mm-hmm. their own personal fear because those people were illegal immigrants, quote-unquote, from, from Nicaragua and so how do you fix these problems? The stated goals are the same. Everybody wants to have a great life. Everyone wants wants to keep the environment clear, but our policies are getting in the way. So from that, I was like, man, these are the same problems. Buying stuff, fixing humans, it's all human stuff. Mm. So let's go study what drives humans. And when I was in school, I studied how people buy and make decisions, Um, but then that very quickly led into literary theory. So, because in all of my research and study, I found, you know, what we would do is we put EEG headsets on people and study how they make decisions. And When you present information to somebody in bullet point form, like the way we're taught in in an MBA school, um, that's actually the worst way to convince somebody to actually change their behavior. You can convince them somebody in in their seat and they'll go, yeah, I agree with you, but they're not going to change their behavior. If you put that same information in story form, they're exponentially, dare I say, more likely to make that change. And so that set me on this path of like, well, why is business science on one side – why is behavioral, like the early days of behavioral economics on this side, why is data science, what we used to call big data and, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence on the other side. And why is literary science, if that's what really drives us to make decisions, why is this on this other thing? Why isn't it all together in this big unified theory? Mm. And that's what the big, wild and crazy idea that I had, but I had to go prove it out in the real world. And so I convinced my way into go working at Walmart, which was a really funny, fun place. Did they get it? They did not get it. Um, no, they were. So I, I was kind of like uh, almost like in an insurgent way. Like I was,
0: get, I got right, brought right. You, in. You come in with a different cover, right? Yeah. And you had this sort of side yeah. gig that you were trying yeah. to. Exactly. Make and work. then I wanted to awesome. learn
1: how these things worked and apply some of the stuff. And then I got recruited to Lowe's, which is a big Fortune 40 company in the US. And that's when I really got to, like, here's the big vision. And we were able to build some crazy stuff. Like we put the first 3D printer in the International Space Station or helped hmm. to. We built the first autonomous robots. We built exosuits. We built uh, we built the largest VR, AR showrooms and stores in the world and a whole bunch of other things that you wouldn't think a boring place like Lowe's would do because we were using real ways of how people make decisions, which is storytelling, yeah. neuroscience, and
0: applying them in a practical
1: way in a traditional
0: company. There's a, there's a, a study, which you probably know better than me, and I'm just going to quote it in um, very unscientific terms Mm. that there was a study and as is the case that when you want to understand the brain and how it works often the best way is looking at when it's damaged Mm. so Mm -hmm. abnormal psychology and so on So there was a study of people who had the emotional core of their brain damaged either congenitally or by trauma and one of the sort of hypotheses were that these these sort of subjects would not have any emotions mm-hmm. and not be able to function properly and what they actually found was that it wasn't so much that that they lacked the empathy but these subjects couldn't make any decisions Yeah. so in their day to day life having a lack of emotion or not able to function properly they couldn't decide about anything, anything. so there's this whole sort of field of science emerging that emotion and decision making, so I guess change and everything that we're doing here at Singularity University, how important emotion is and storytelling and all of that. Maybe you can kind of unpack that Oh, a I bit love first. that.
1: I love that. So we have we have this like weird uh Western view of the body, the mind, and the soul as being these very distinct things and separate and emotions kind of wrapped into that too. And that's just not true at all. I mean we're what we're, we're learning is actually the Greeks were more right than we ever thought they believed in this thing called that we now call embodied cognition which is that your your decision-making process didn't just happen in the gray matter that's in your head but they happened in your heart and in your liver and in your hands and your and all of it happens in this big hmm. mess this mix of things and if you cut one piece out from the other then you are un, unable to make really true and good decisions and we see that we see that in decision making, in 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 what we're learning in embodied cognition, which is literally that our bodies, part of part of our bodies, are are the is the learning, and the way that we make decisions, just using our bodies and the kinesthesiology attached to that, let alone the emotions. The emotion is true compression code for our brains and for us to make quick decisions. Mm. You know, we we have this like, you, you know, you can, you can go back to like this whole robot theory of like. If you have Mr. Data from Star Trek, which I love Star Trek, don't get me wrong. But if you have that and you say, there, there is somebody that doesn't have emotion. If you have Spock who doesn't mm-hmm. have emotion. And that somehow this pure rational thought allows you to make the best decisions. Right, exactly. It's just not true. Emotion is so powerful because it allows us to make quick decisions so that we can make decisions. Sure, we're going to make some wrong decisions. But man, on balance, emotion is super powerful to make the right ones. This also goes into the bias conversation. Bias has a negative connotation. Bias is an actually extremely powerful thing for good. Hmm. The question is, where do your biases lead you? And if you have ownership over your own biases, then you can do powerful things. And if you use bias almost in a jujitsu kind of way where you're able to take that and then put it in the right direction, then you can do powerful things with it. So all of it, emotion, bias... Cognition—it all happens together, and they can't be compartmentalized. We create the p- compartments that don't actually exist.
0: Mm. So, how do I take all of that and apply that in a very practical way? Let's say case study. Yeah, I'm heading up change in. I'm just gonna pull them out as an example. I'm not picking on them. <laughs> La- the Land Transit Authority of Singapore—not yeah. th- the sexiest case study in the world—but you know, I'm dealing with mass. Um, Transit. I'm dealing with even those, you know, those electric scooters. Sure, this is sort of very practical day-to-day stuff. Let's say I'm, I'm in charge and I've got to create change. And you're talking to me about, you know, whole-body decision making (laughs) and emotion. And let's bring an incrementalism into this debate as well in this discussion you know, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. You know, I'm yeah. feel, you know you're know, you throwing Star Trek and sci-fi at me <laughs> as well. Like, I'm, Okay, I, I'm about to capitulate and say, right, you know, just give me the bullet points That's right. now, Carl. Just give me the PowerPoint presentation. Well, here, here it is. I mean,
1: the simple thing is you don't have to know about any of that stuff. Our ancestors didn't know any of that stuff. And it didn't really matter. What they did really understand better than we understand today is that storytelling is the prime conduit for us to take all of those things and just synthesize them and do something with it. Storytelling. If you go back to Homer, like I mean, real true storytelling. So I would say to the transit authority, what is your strategic narrative? Hmm. And if you go back to the moonshot, everyone's so so stoked about talking about moonshots these days, and for good reason, right? President Kennedy, when he got up and did his famous speech, he was laying out, in my view, a strategic narrative, a story of the future. And it wasn't super convoluted, but it had a protagonist. It was the U.S. It has an antagonist was the Soviet Union. And it had a very specific goal, which was to take a man, bring him to the moon and safely back again. And did they have a clue of how that was going to happen? No. No idea whatsoever. But every single organization does the complete opposite where they focus on all of the steps of what they're going to do. But then you get to the end and you're like, I
0: don't even know why we did any of this stuff. Could it have happened without that strategic narrative? Nope, never. Never. Even just through brute force? Nope, never. More resources? Could, no. it, could it, I mean, I'm just wondering it, to what extent did that impact the result? I mean, when he stood up and said, right, by the end of this decade, we're going to put a man on the moon. Because it galvanized,
1: it galvanized the country and it put us on a focus of how we we're going to actually do right. something big. So what you have is in any organization, in any country, you have a lot of pent-up emotion with that leads towards an action. And that action can go in a negative way or can go in a positive way. So Kennedy could have taken, in my view, could have taken all of that negative anti-communist uh, like, pow- like pent up kinetic energy, yeah, yeah. and we could have gone to war, and that could have been Cold War, central beyond Cold War, could have been nukes across the world. That could have happened. Almost we did, right? almost yeah. did a couple yeah. of times. Cuba. Yeah. But then what we could do is to shift that to something positive. Let's let's go to space. Let's win that way. Yeah, and that is so powerful. And then one of the, one of the, my favorite things, which is, I don't know if this story actually happened, but it illustrates my point, which is that a true strategic narrative filters down all the way to the bottom, and it makes something that you are working on bigger than yourself. So, you know, Kennedy, this is probably apocryphal. I don't know if this is true or not, but it illustrates my point. Years later, he was visiting different NASA sites, and as presidents often do, was talking to the janitor and said, saw some man sweeping or mopping or something. He said, sir, what do you do here? He says, well, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. Now, whether it's true or not it doesn't really matter. W- what does matter is that's somebody who fully understood the strategic narrative of what they were doing. Yeah. And that man didn't go home every night and said, I'm a janitor, ah oh, my job's the worst. He he was so happy to be part of something really yeah, big. Yeah, yeah. So then the question go back to the transit authority: What is the strategic narrative of your organization? Yeah, and where, the, where does that start one, then? I mean, at the, the challenge top. with that. At the but top,
0: where, where does it start in terms of finding the narratives? Do they have to have these hero myths that they build on? Great question. Yeah, what, where, where do they pluck them from? Do they get a consultant in to say, right, you have choice of seven narratives, and how, how does it work? What's the actual mechanics in that? So there is a good,
1: better, best way. The best way is to do that is to hire professional, published science fiction writers, which is what we do. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did in my professional life and I do now, and then synthesize all your marketing research and trend data and synthesize it into a forward-looking view of the future. Um, with characters conflict, in a narrative arc, and it needs to be a real story. Or you can do something very simple that you can do yourself. If you look on Google and just type in narrative arc, it needs to have all of those pieces. It has to have character, conflict, narrative arc, and a resolution. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have those pieces, it's not a story. And it should be something that you can compartmentalize and share very easily. I mean, we call this an elevator pitch. What's the elevator pitch? But it has to have characters conflict, and a narrative yeah. arc. And you can tell these stories really easily. And I think people think, like, oh, well, that's not... That's not uh, business enough. Exactly. Who cares? What is every single startup pitch? It's a story. Yeah. Why you're the best people to be able to do this thing that you have really no expertise or capability in doing at all? But we're gonna, you know what? We're gonna go ahead and give you millions of dollars or our hard-earned money just because I like your story. Hmm. That is it. What is every single politician? Hopefully, they're telling a good story. So what are the big strategic narratives of our countries, of our organizations? And if you, don't know, if you don't know what it is, there's something really wrong. And guess what? It's not principles and values. Those are bullet points that should be filtered into your story.
0: You, you mentioned a good point, Carl, which I feel is probably the resistance, which may come out in these conversations. People might say, but that's not business enough. Mm. You, you're talking about sci-fi. You're talking about Hollywood. You're mm-hmm. talking about Homer, mm-hmm. you know, these these myths that have been around for thousands of yeah. years, campfire conversations and tales yeah. that filter out to day, day-to-day conversations. And I guess people sort of pull back a little bit because they don't feel that this is right. They they feel that, yeah, I kind of see this, but like I need to kind of now edit this down mm-hmm. and make it more mediocre. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. You know, I need to make it more, I need to strip out the emotion from it. Yeah. You know, And then we, we sort of resort back to the bullet points, and then the committee decides, right? That's right. And then they sort of strip it out, and then they just leave the bare bones, the logic. So what do I need to do to get over myself first in this conversation? So I would
1: say, what do you do in your spare time? In your spare time, no matter what it is that you like to do, I can almost guarantee it revolves around some sort of entertainment around story. Yeah. And every other person that you're going to talk to is going to also do that thing. So why in the world would you leave that outside when you can just bring it in and tell that same story? So you can wrap stories in a in a in a veil that makes it feel very businessy, and that's what we do. But it's still a story. It still will get to gets beyond all of the defenses that people have around. Oh, we can't do this or we can't do that. Going back to the moonshot, mm. every single thing that was said back then was just beyond. The realm of possibility. It yeah. was impossible. You know, even today, huge, amazing governments cannot put a man on the moon. Today. And they were able to do those things in the 60s. It's yeah, just yeah. insane. So you can do incredible Sorry. things if you have a story wrapped around it. So I would just say, once again, if we understand storytelling, we've known it. We, the science is sound. Why aren't we using that in our everyday life?
0: maybe we're not aware mm-hmm. that those stories are there i mean we're here in singapore right now and singapore itself is a story oh an amazing story no resources no natural resources yes. to speak of you have a founding father which is there a familiar theme right there you go lee kuan yu who took singapore from nothing really yes and said this is the vision you know and that story is reinforced every year with your the equivalent of july the fourth right? yes so It is around us, but maybe we're just not aware that these stories are here. Maybe we, oh, that's a story. You know, that is a story in action. And I can see the benefit of that to me and how it actually makes me feel part of something. And like the janitor, makes me feel I have a role to play. That's exactly right. So
1: then I would say is every single company, every single country has their origin story. Mm. You know, Silicon Valley is really famous for their garage origin story, right? Yeah. Well, then that's really powerful. But then as time goes on, the story shifts from, yes, that happened in the origin, but then what are we doing now becomes very bulleted. And then what becomes in the future is even more bulleted. And then that's when you lose the story. You can build future stories as well. So every single origin story started with somebody that had some kind of expertise, not really, but they had a really great ability to tell stories and get people wrapped around those.
0: And who today is telling great stories in in your Gosh. You, around you, even outside of Singularity University? Let's put politics aside. Yeah, but the positive stories. You know, where are they coming through? Who, who has inspired you recently? You've seen people telling stories, and you thought, wow.
1: Well, if you think about, I mean, if politics aside, I mean, you think about what Greta has done. Yeah, I mean, she told a story. It was a very. If you think about the strategic narrative that she had, she put herself and her generation as the protagonists of the story. You have destroyed. Our world. I'm not going to school until you fix this thing. Yeah. And it was a very simple, small protest, and then was wrapped around something else. And then look at how that grew in a, like a holocracy way, hmm. very quickly into a true global incident. She is a true global celebrity at 16 or 17. I don't know how old she is, but think about that. It's a very small thing, and what she did was lay out a very clean, strategic narrative.
0: Yeah, it's almost like that hero myth, isn't it, that you see? She's like Frodo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, right? She's the accidental hero. She doesn't have any power. She doesn't have any assets. Yes. But she has this idea, and she's kind of thrown into it as well. She's not sort of setting out saying that, you know, I'm going to go and do this. It's almost like I have to do this because...
1: That I love that. So there's that's the Joseph Campbell is my is my big hero. You probably yeah, read yeah, some Joseph course, Campbell stuff. Very I knew we got along. But uh, <laughs> so the, there's so many different ways to break out the hero's journey. But there's a really simplistic way that has three parts. And the first one is the call to adventure, mm. right? So could have gone, yeah, the world's doomed. I got to get back to school, and that's kind of what we do in a lot of companies and organizations do. But she decided to take that call to adventure. And to do something with it. The next is you have to go through this initiation, which is you have to do all the hard work of like she sat in front of the parliament building and she continued to do all of these things and to continue to push it. And then the third thing, which is the most important thing, is you have to, once you've gained this knowledge, you got to bring it back or power. you got to bring it back to the people that need it. Because if you don't bring it back, then you actually become the villain. Hmm. That's the only thing that separates the hero from the villain is they the villain goes through all the same things but then keeps the power for themselves and so if we really understood that if we there's something that deeply resonates with every single person around this hero's journey and if we understood that then we could do bigger things yeah
0: as a result of that and it's not almost like they have to tell an amazing story they just have to tell a story we understand right
1: no no one of the things so people will say, oh, this feels very complicated and "Oh, I'm not a good storyteller or whatever. Well, I do this with my we do this with our family. I have an eight year old daughter and we for years what we will do is on January 1st, we write our Christmas card for the next year. And so my daughter will write down what she would want that Christmas card to say next year. Mm. And my wife does, too, and I do, too. And then we talk about what it is that we w- want to do. And then we synthesize our stories together to make a family story. So we're doing a future looking back thing. We started doing this when she was five, and so she just doesn't think of it any other way. And then we can use that as a way to say, okay, as things pop up, is that what we want to do as a family? Is it worth us changing our story? Is it worth us? And it's just a different way of looking at it. And that requires no advanced training, no knowledge. People write stories and emails all the time. yeah, But it just takes writing it down and being a little uncomfortable with the ambiguity of it all.
0: Is it easier with an eight-year-old than a forty-eight-year-old? Oh my gosh,
1: so much easier!
0: Yeah. Well, what's the problem with a forty-eight-year-old? I'm forty-seven, so yeah. I've got a few years of experience, which may work against me here.
1: It does, right? Because we we are create put, put artificial barriers from what's what's work and what's fun, right? What's 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 cool? What's what's deemed acceptable and what's not? Yeah. And it's all weird. Is that fear? I think maybe it's...
0: 100%. Maybe we get that, but there's a fear of something that's holding us back there. Yes. To say we can embrace that. We get it. We know it. It's out there. Like you say, in our spare time, they're watching Netflix or listening to podcasts or whatever it may be. Yeah. And yet when we go into this world of work...
1: (gasps) Put that away. Why? Because, yeah, because we've created this, that that's that's fake and then this is real.
0: As a man who studied human behavior for many years... We, Why are we doing it? We do it because
1: we're scared of what that will look like. And it comes, once again, from this Western view of compartmentalizing mm. different parts of our life. That is just not true, right? So th- this idea of having a work life and a home life and a, all these things, there that's just not true. You have a life and you have different ways that you spend it and do different things. In the same way that you are a person at work, but you're the same person when you leave work. Mm. You might show up differently, you might do different things, but you're the same person um and and so why do why do we try to force those things apart it just doesn't make any sense it's a very weird and abstract way of looking at things it's very western and we need to break it because it's just not healthy
0: yeah well almost like this conversation now i'm really enjoying it like we're getting deep into some quite jugular issues yeah and this is work yeah we're at work yeah
1: we shouldn't be talking about this. We should talk. We be talking about IRR, and we should yeah, be talking about exactly.
0: ROI. And it's
1: it, those things are interesting. So one of the things that I always look at is like, what's a leading indicator and what's a lagging indicator? A lagging, indi- we spend way too many too much time working on metrics around lagging indicators, sales, uh, all, anything you can truly measure on a spreadsheet is a lagging indicator almost always. Right. Stories are leading indicators. The story falls apart way before. You start to see it in the lagging indicator. But once you see it in the lagging indicators, it's almost too hard to fix the story problem. Right. And you see this in companies and organizations and countries all
0: the time. So those lagging indicators are a result of the leading indicators. Yes. So when you've got poor sales, it's not a result of your sales team, it's there a result you of upstream your story.
1: Your story is whacked out. The story is dead. It's tired. It's not actually coherent. People aren't telling the story anymore. Yeah. Almost without fail. If you go back to every single successful turnaround, it was because they were able to reignite the story. Yeah. Satya Nadell is a great example. Absolutely. What is the first thing that he did? He wrote a very—you can look it up online. The first letter that he sent out when he first became CEO is a a reinitialization and a recreation of the story of what Microsoft was, is, and where it's going. That was the first thing he did. And look at what he's been able to accomplish. Yeah.
0: Well, the share price speaks for itself. Yeah. Right?
1: I mean, that thing was like the Death Star before. Yeah. And and where they're doing now is incredible.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, phenomenal. We could go on. Yeah. Yeah. But the limitations of storytelling is time. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough time to tell these stories. Where are you going next, Carl? I know you're a, a man who travels a lot. What's next on in your story?
1: Yeah, for me, so right now I'm working on lots of different things, but the thing I'm most passionate about is education. Mm. So I think education is truly broken, and for this world of exponentiality and the automation that's going to result in mass amounts of people being unemployed, um, what are we going to do to help people learn faster and learn in a way that's really truly important? And we've been developing this thing that uh, combines advances in neuroscience and virtual reality training. And it's about 80% more effective than the best teacher standing right next to you wow. because it dynamically changes based on what's going on in your brain in the exact same time and you're experiencing it and doing it. And it can be anything from a history lesson to learning how to, how to do microsurgery. It's all the same thing. And so if we haven't really advanced education since Socrates, a man standing up on a, on a, on a thing asking questions and people writing it down, I mean really that's where we're at still. Why, don't, why haven't we taken some of these technologies to try to, uh, try to get ahead of this mass uh, unemployment problem that's going to happen as a result of
0: AI and automation? Mm. Exciting. Well, Carl, hopefully we can get a part two on that. Yeah. get an I'd love to yeah. hear the journey. Yeah. Fascinating. Carl Nell, everybody. Thanks so much. Um, EVP of Uncommon Partners Lab at SU. And thanks for joining us here in Singapore as well. Safe travels. And thanks a lot for sharing your insights today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Appreciate it.